on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but let your me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game. coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Love my Thursday shows. I always tell you that every week, love doing this show, a more in-depth interview with a wonderful guest, as we have wonderful guests in studio today. I'll introduce them in just a moment. I do want to tell you that I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Hope you all had a wonderful Hanukkah season. Hope you all are enjoying this little break before we launch into 2024 next week because election season, it's actually already started, but really next week at the beginning of 2024, we launch into election season. And uh, even though other people say it other years, the most important election season in American history, I do believe will be 2024. So just a very big year coming up. We have a great start on next year. I'm gonna tell you before we close out today, our guests we have upcoming in the new year. Um, but I wanna plant two other seeds before I turn to our guest today. Uh, one seed is that there's a huge story out just starting to become public, uh, made public in part by Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, that deals with what has been uncovered about Israel, and in particular documents that came to light that do appear to show that some very high-level officials in Israel did know the attack of October 7th was coming and permitted it to happen, permitted the horror, the violence. We've covered it in great uh, depth on this show, uh, permitted it for the long-term goal, allegedly, the long-term goal of making clear to the world that Israel simply cannot coexist with or have a two-state solution with Israel occupying its land and the Gaza Strip being occupied by residents who are, who would elect Hamas as their governor, as their government, who are majority Muslim, who are not, there is no such thing as a Palestinian national identity, that's a farce. They are largely Jordanian uh, national people living in the Gaza Strip and the alleged purpose apparently revealed by these documents uh, is that that Israel was trying to show the world simply can't live with cannot have Israel as as, as a nation-state uh, which includes Gaza and essentially to try to have the world accept including America accept a large number of Gaza former Gaza residents, refugees being forced out of Gaza in order to bring peace to Israel. And so there begins a movement now to have the people still residing in Gaza who are um, majority, nearly all Muslim and nearly all um, Arab, uh, have them moved out of that region to other countries in the world. It is a blockbuster story. I'm only teasing it today. It's not the topic of our interview today, but I want to tell you, I will be talking about it on Tuesday. It changes a lot about the world if this is a true story. And Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is already out publicly saying it is a true story. Uh, he's seen the document. So uh, we'll be talking about that on Tuesday, what it means for the future of American-Israel relations, what it means uh, to the people of Israel, what it means in terms of our immigration policy. 
policy in America, because certainly in America will be among the countries uh, people are pushing to have the, um, the refugees uh, move to, and that's just a, a monumental issue. I want to tease that because I can't tell you how important it is. I'll be writing about it, and we'll be talking about it on Tuesday. Uh, the other thing, a quick tease with you, with you before we start. Uh, so the, over this last few days, my husband and I watched a documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. I cannot urge you strongly enough to watch The Fall of Minneapolis. Uh, it contains a woman who's in that film is a, um, a former newscaster in Minneapolis, lost her job over her coverage of the George Floyd incident. She has a book out um, called They're Lying. That's, I've got a subtitle, They're Lying. I am bringing her in from Minneapolis uh, to join us next week, in the, not next week, but in the new year, early in the new year, to talk about what the impact was of the countless lies told the public about the George Floyd incident and really what happened in America as a result. So those little teases um, before we turn to our guest today. I'm thrilled to have him in studio. He's actually been on the show before. John Leake is here in studio with us today. One other time he was on the show with me along with Dr. Peter McCullough. He and Dr. Peter McCullough are, are allies, friends, colleagues. They work on a, a Substack column together. Um, they also co-wrote a book um, which is called The Courage to Face COVID. It was the topic of our previous interview. In fact, it's got a great subtitle, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. I knew I wouldn't memorize that subtitle. I'm just going to read it to you, but <laughs> it's a great book, great book. And um, so we did talk about that. We'll probably briefly touch on it today. But the reason John is here today is because he has, um, he's also, in addition to being a great writer with Dr. McCullough and colleague of his, um, he's also a true crime writer. And his latest book, which uh, we're going to talk about, is called The Meaning of Malice. It also has a subtitle, The Meaning of Malice on the Trail of the Black Widow of Highland Park. Now, I'll tell you, if you're not in Texas, you may not know Highland Park is right down the street from our studio. Highland Park is a lovely area of Dallas, Texas. And this is a true crime story. This is what the book looks like. We're going to talk about this. Um, but I know once we get to this book, we'll never get off it. So we're going to talk a few other topics before we get to that. So with, without, and John Leake, true crime story uh, writer, colleague of Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, has a very, very colorful uh, long life story, which I, or a lot of adventures he's already had in his young life. But I think I'll just turn to him at this time and welcome to the show our good friend, John Leake. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. You're so welcome. It's great to see you here. And um, I, I, I keep sending you emails and texts, adding on stories I want to talk about. So you have to talk really fast. Okay? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> no, I want to say, though, because this is, I mean, to read a true crime writer, this is the first true crime book I ever read, by the way. Um, it, it kind of scares me. I don't like reading those. I don't read fake spy novels. But anyway, back to this. It's, it's very well written and very, um, very amazing. So I want to start with, you had kind of an interesting career. You um, studied history and philosophy um, at Boston University. Uh, you went to Vienna, Austria on a graduate school scholarship, ended up living there for over a decade, and you began your writing efforts there. Your first book, Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer. Okay, just to be clear, this was a true story, right? True, yeah. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. Oh my gosh. Well, this guy, this gentleman who was a serial killer, Jack Unterweger. Something Unterweger. Unterweger. Okay, it became actually, you, you got a lot of attention over this book. So just as a basic idea, how do you, this story had been around for a while, and you 
dove in to tell the whole story. And I'm going to just tease by telling the most amazing fact about this bad guy. He, Jack Unterweger, Wager, um, he had managed, he was charismatic, he's a serial killer, charismatic author. He managed to get a freelance assignment from a media outlet to cover the very murders he himself was committing. And, and, and not, just, not just any media outlet, it was the Austrian National Broadcasting Corporation, which is the, it's the media outlet of, of Austrian broadcasting. For a long time, it actually had a monopoly on broadcasting. So it would be like Jack going to NPR or the BBC and saying, hey, I hear there's this serial killer that's stalking the streets of New York or Washington, D.C. Um, or London. And um, I think I'm the guy to, to report on it. And he interviewed the, the chief of Vienna, the Vienna police, um, inquired about his, you know, the chief's investigation and who are your suspects. And so it was, it was quite an intimate inquiry on the part of the unknown offender at the time. Okay, so, I mean, I don't want to, the story of Highland Park is where I, I, mean, I can't dive too much into all these, but why did you get interested, this was your first crime, but how did you get interested in writing true crime? Well, I was living in Vienna. I loved the city of Vienna. I lived right in the middle of it. My favorite um, film was The Third Man with Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. um, it was, a, I think it was 1949, it won the Academy Award, in which Orson Welles plays this charismatic bad guy, an American living in Vienna, who on the surface of it, he appears to be this upstanding American citizen that's living in Vienna right after the Second World War during the Allied occupation, and he runs a medical charity for children. And unbeknownst to all of the people who think that Orson Welles is a good guy, in fact, he's cutting penicillin, which reduces its efficacy, yeah. in order to sell all the more of it on the black market. So he's actually murdering children and, and other people. And so I, I was really, it's such an incredibly sinister story. Um, and Orson Welles was such a wonderful actor. So I was very yeah. compelled by this. And I thought, I'd like to write a similar story set in Vienna. And I just stumbled across this story in a newspaper. I was sitting in a coffee house reading the paper. There was a reference to Jack Unterweger, the serial killer. And um, so I started researching it. And so did your research, by the time you began researching it, he had been identified as already It had already been adjudicated. So but, you just... but, but no one apart from a young attorney who fell in love with him while he was in pretrial detention, no one had written a book about him. And I went and I interviewed the, the, the lawyer and I thought, the first thing I did was read her book and I thought, you are not an impartial storyteller in this. <laughs> I just, yeah. And I told her that. I said, you know, you're a little bit too close to this guy. Um, have you thought about that? And you know, she, she fortunately has, has a very good sense of humor. So um, I, I ended up getting to be friends with her. But I, I believe I wrote, well, I know I did. I wrote the authoritative impartial account of the story. It's truly staggering, and I'm, I, do, I have not read that one, um, but the idea of someone, I'm, I'm 
I don't know what the right word is, blown away sounds like a kid talking, but I am astounded by the audacity of somebody who would be, I mean, you'd have to be mentally ill. First of all, you're a serial killer. You're, you're not right in the head. But you would actually be going, you, you would think you're so much smarter than everybody else that you can go get hired. Well, he was so much smarter than everybody else to a point, to a point, but a pretty far point. I mean, he kept getting away with stuff, even though there were a lot of things that anyone with any common sense would have taken a closer look at. So if you keep doing audacious stuff and you keep getting away with it, um, it, it does embolden you. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the mental quality that you would go to the NPR of Austria and say, you know, the, I'm gonna follow up on this story. And, and not even, I, I mean, you just- the, Well, I they don't want a bunch of dummies work at the NPR. I mean, yeah. I, I, mean I mean, you do it today. I, yeah, okay. Fair point. Okay. If you were if if you were the right profile, you could do it today with Corey Flintock. Today's NPR. Yeah, don't even get me started on them. Okay. <laughs> second book. Uh, so before we get to the second book, uh, Cold a Long Time, an Alpine Mystery. Um, quick, tell us about that one. I got a call after my first book came out from a, a mother in Canada, in Saskatoon, Canada, and she said, in the summer of 1989, my son, who was 23 years old, vanished without a trace in the Austrian Alps. And 14 years later, his body was found. We believe that there was foul play and that uh, the cause and manner of his death was concealed. I didn't, she, she sounded like a credible witness but I thought she's his mother, um, she's sure. probably too close to this, she's probably not seeing it very clearly, but the story was compelling enough uh, to compel me to go investigate it. And the, the further I dug into it, and, and I initially tried very hard to play the devil's advocate. I mean, I, I looked at this from a very skeptical standpoint, kind of playing the devil's advocate against the mother's testimony, because I wanted to test, you know, the hypothesis. The further I dug into it, the more I realized that the boy's mother was correct. But it, it, it actually, and this greatly surprised me, the truth of the story was actually far darker than the boy's parents had conceived. Um, there was a, a, a level of concealing his death and then, then later concealing the cause and manner of his death, it was actually far worse than um, his parents had contemplated. So your job in this case, I, mean, the, I know you said his body was recovered. When it was recovered, did they conclude initially just kind of natural causes? Well, that was, that was what was so intriguing about it because it's a very complicated case, but he was skiing on a, or snowboarding on a glacier ski resort. Okay, so the initial suspicion was in the summertime, and the initial suspicion was you guys didn't control your crevasses correctly. Like the, the ski patrol is supposed yeah. to know where they are. He must have fallen into a crevasse, and the ski patrol or the slope grooming uh, department failed to inspect the crevasse before they filled it with snow, before they just oh. pushed a blade into it. So the parents thought he, he had been asphyxiated alive by being by the snow by by the snow he'd fallen into a crevasse now the, 
this is a, a complicated story, and I, and I do want to talk about this, but I, I'll, I'll say this about cold a long time. Um, the thing that was so intriguing was um, the mother correctly perceived, well, he rented snowboarding equipment. So let's ask, at the end of the day, did he return the equipment? And the initial answer was, yes, he did. Well, no, excuse me, the initial answer is, we don't know. We lost some records. It was this you know, typical sort of equivocating nonsense. But then later, a month later, they said, in fact, we determined that he did return his gear. So that was the first moment of the cover-up. 14 years later, he melts out in the middle of the glacier, in the middle of the ski slope, with his snowboarding gear. Okay, so his body is transferred to the Innsbruck Institute of Forensic Medicine, which is like a coroner or a medical examiner's office. And the, uh, the head of the institute tells the mother in this very friendly sort of solicitous way, well, I'm so sorry about what happened to your son, but I'm not authorized to perform an autopsy. Well, why weren't you? I mean, so then it just gets darker and deeper and weirder. Ultimately, what I was able to obtain were photos of the corpse. So there was no autopsy, no official, but photos were taken. I had those photos examined by top forensic people, and it's very clear from multiple forensic elements that are on display in the photos. He was run over by a grooming machine, and the driver panicked, and pushed him into a crevasse. It was an intentional burial oh in order God. to conceal the, the accident. accident, probably probably out of fear that the driver would be prosecuted for negligent homicide, for negligence. Did anyone ever get arrested over that? No. Okay. Um, Which is fine. I'm just yeah. curious. I, I presented the case. My Austrian publisher was afraid I would be sued. I said, go ahead and sue me. I'd love to do discovery with all of you people. Yeah. No one ever sued me. No one ever challenged me. But there was also um, no legal attempt to address this, which shame on Austria. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to get to your book. But, you know, it's really interesting listening to you talk. You have a curiosity about truth and a persistence. And that came across in this book that we're going to talk about the meaning of malice. This idea that you just aren't going to accept the, okay, here's a narrative, sorry, he skied off into a crevasse by mistake, or whatever or the other assumptions were made, other cases, you persist in getting to truth, which is a great quality, which was needed, again, back to your book, with, um, and, and is ongoing today, dealing with COVID, but the courage to face COVID-19, this whole book and the effort you and Peter McCullum make, Dr. Peter McCullum make, to just persist in what is the truth of what various companies that manufacture vaccines knew? What did they know about the harm? And then what did they do once they knew? And how much did they hide? And what is, and I'm sure you see these emails that uh, there's a series of doctors have a daily email. I got added to that list a while ago. And I mean, there's just endless research and determination. So on the one hand, these people are just, I'm going to get to the truth. You, Dr. McCullough, many others. And then there's a whole other mindset of people who just say, okay, we got the narrative. We get it. The narrative is uh, COVID was deadly and uh, vaccines save lives and the vaccines are safe. And they just live in that world of manufactured narrative. And they don't want to have people, pestiferous people like you, 
challenging them. I mean, it is, a, it is, and that, that, whatever it works for me, dichotomy, that persistence for truth and we're going to live in our narrative and we're not going to listen to you, that gets played out in our society on issue after issue after issue. It is kind of an astonishing thing. I'm, well, you know. our, our, our world um, uh, is, it, it does have a very large measure of fraud. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry, you know, had these triumphs, or, you know, in, in the, for example, in the early 40s, the mass production of penicillin. I mean, it's a miracle. I mean, the amount of suffering um, and death from some of these very severe bacterial infections were swiftly cured by penicillin. But I would characterize that as low-hanging you know, fruit. As pharmacology develops, you know, developing penicillin and mass-producing it in the 40s during the Second World War, that was kind of there for the taking with, with the sufficient um, ingenuity and, and, and diligence. As we get into the 21st century, it becomes harder and harder for pharmaceutical companies to find safe and effective molecules that match a, a widespread unmet medical need. So they're chipping away at the margins of profitability. And it's very hard to get a blockbuster drug. I mean, the last time Pfizer had a blockbuster was Viagra. And they kind of stumbled across that. It, it wasn't, a, that was a repurposed medication. Yeah, yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, you know, these, this, this idea of, of a novel respiratory pandemic under the PrEP Act of 2005, you can hastily put together a vaccine. And under the PrEP Act, that vaccine is legally classified as a countermeasure. So it's yeah. like we're at a state of war desperate times for call for desperate measures. So that was an emergency authorized countermeasure. It's not even subjected to the same kind of testing, quality control, manufacturing control as a normal pharmaceutical product. Right. But because people are frightened, they line up for it. Fear plays into it so much. Fear of just, once you have people frightened, and it was a cultivated fear on the subject of COVID, a cultivated fear. People just said, whatever it's going to take to make this go away, I don't care. Tell me I have to stay home. I have to wear a mask. I can't go to church. Whatever it is, just keep me safe. That fear drove submission on the part of the American people. And once the pharmaceuticals figured out, you know, we can make money to beat the ban on these vaccines. Liability free. Yes. The government does all the marketing. The government pre-purchases all of the product and then the government rams it down everybody's throat. I mean, nice work if you can get it, right? I mean, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't have to have a market. You, you don't assume any liability. You just, it's just here, US government, buy all of this crap that you know nothing about and unload it on an unsuspecting citizenry. And a fear-laden uh, citizenry. People just not not just natural fear, but programmed fear. Yes, programmed, cultivated. Fear. Yes, because people are actually surprisingly well attuned to true danger. So, stop and think about this. If if SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of COVID-19, if it were really such a virulent virus that killed young people, killed young athletes. Where are they? Where are the dead young athletes? Yeah. So I'm not seeing any of them, like none. 
zero. Yep. So if this thing is so deadly that it poses a an equally lethal threat to the entire citizenry, I would expect to see one dead young person. I mean, when, when the 1918 Spanish flu blasted through the cities of Europe in 1918, you had young people, they would wake up with a headache and they'd be dead 24 hours later. So humans were actually attuned to that. It's like, whoa, this is really bad news. And if your husband, there was a famous painter in Austria named Egon Schiele, he was, I think, 27. He and his wife got the Spanish flu. He painted a very poignant portrait of his wife in her deathbed as she was dying. It's a lovely portrait. And then the next day he was dead. Well, that 1918 Spanish flu has been the catastrophic model of respiratory viruses, but we've not had one like that since. And it became evident very, very quickly that COVID was not another 1918 flu. We knew that within two weeks. Absolutely. I want to jump to something that you, uh, it, it touches on the, this entire topic. You had a column in your Substack. I, I think of my, uh, and it was called Faith Immune to Facts. I think you wrote the column. It's a December piece you did. Uh, and er, I can't urge people strong enough. Go to Substack and subscribe to Courageous Discourse and read these great pieces. I and mean, they're, they're just really well written. But the piece you wrote, Faith Immune to Facts, I thought was really, it was uh, really striking. So uh, this from a December article, you wrote about a friend in Boston sent me a Boston Globe interview with Nobel laureates Drew Weissman and Catalan Carrico, in which they reaffirmed their faith in the COVID-19 vaccines. The most notable proclamation can be seen. And then they had, they had a screenshot in there. And I, I meant to have it ready for Amelia, but I didn't. In any case, they're just basically, these are Nobel laureates, so they're apparently educated and somewhat intelligent. Um, but they're talking about, you have to sort out a little bit, if I was talking to a 70, the question uh, posed was, is it urgent that we all get the new COVID vaccine? And you have to sort it out a little bit. If I was talking to a 75 year old patient, I'd say you definitely need the vaccine because your 75 year old's immune system, blah, blah, isn't as good. But even for young people, the importance there is, um, is that they may not get really sick but what about their parents? What about their grandparents? What about other immune suppressed or people with immune problems or elderly people that they meet in society? Then taking the vaccine is less to protect themselves and more to protect society. And you just dove into how could people of this intelligence to be Nobel laureates still be selling this message? Yeah, I mean, even though, even though Rochelle Walensky, the, the CDC director said two years ago, it doesn't prevent transmission. So how do you, how do you, with a straight face, say to young, young people, you need to get this before the holidays so that you won't transmit it to your grandparents. But even if I do get it according to the CDC director, I could still, so th this has no basis in factual reality. Those, those Nobel laureates, they remind me, I don't know if people remember this guy, he was absolutely hilarious. Robert Tilton, he was a television evangelist. I mean, he would say, um, you need to send me a lot of money, and it doesn't matter if you don't really have any money, send more than you think you can, Jesus will take care of you. I mean, it's just uh -huh. downright cynical. These guys are, just, you know, get another vaccine. Doesn't matter what we've learned about it, get another one. And same with, same with Bill Gates. He, had this conversation with Tucker 
not Tucker. Who, who's the guy, the CNN guy, the Gloria Vanderbilt boy? Oh, yeah, because you, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Really, really. Anderson Cooper. Yeah, Anderson Cooper, yeah. He, he and Bill were talking, and they're just saying, yeah, you know, I've, I've gotten the vaccine and the booster, and I got COVID. And Bill says, well, yeah, but, you know, get it again anyway. Um, in, in other words, facts, uh, faith immune to facts. It just doesn't matter what the empirical data or reality is. It's the, the faith in this get this injection, it will confer protection. That is an article of faith. It's stunning. It is stunning because you had Dr. Naomi Wolf, who finally got out of Pfizer after a battle in court where they first said all their research related to the efficacy prior to the vaccine being released. All the research couldn't be released for 75 years. And finally, or whatever the number was, and some judge said, no, actually, you know, next six months, you're going to release it. So you probably know Naomi Wolf. She hired a, a, a just a team, an army of experts who dove in and read the Pfizer data and discovered they knew early on that the side effects of, of all... From, from mild ones to extremely dangerous, to deaf, to, to uh, harming your capacity to carry a baby to term. They knew all of this, they put it out anyway. And then similarly, Sidney Powell recently won a lawsuit and got information from Moderna. Same thing, Moderna knew all along about how dangerous this was. I'm getting to the point so that information's out there. Naomi Wolf has been like, you know, the, screaming from the mountaintop. Can, can, everyone, can you please read this? Same with Dr. Peter McCullough, trying to explain data. So many people are out there, wonderful experts. Sidney Powell puts out Moderna's information, and yet we're sitting and watching football uh, yesterday and over the weekend, and you have advertisements for Pfizer from Pfizer. The very company whose data is out there showing that they were just reckless. Pfizer also has a very long civil and criminal rap sheet. I mean, the largest um, corporate fine ever paid was by Pfizer in the year 2009 for multiple acts of fraud, including fraudulent concealment of safety data. Um, I mean, and, and, and they're still, don't you find it staggering? They're still out there running ads during. People have very short memories. Remember when I was telling you about Harry Lyme, um, excuse me, the, the, the third man in, in Vienna, the Orson Welles film. So him cutting penicillin. So I think it was in the year 1996, Pfizer ran a trial of, of a, a new antibiotic, a novel antibiotic that was developing against um, uh, bacterial meningitis, and they ran a trial in Nigeria, and they deliberately, in the, versus the control, which was a well-established antibiotic, when they administered the control, the, the established antibiotic, they administer it at intentionally lower doses in order to diminish its efficacy. Yeah. And some of the children in the um, meningitis uh, trial died, okay? So this became a big scandal. John Le Carre, who was fascinated mm -hmm. by this whole um, uh, Harry Lyme, Orson Welles, the third man, which was written by Graham Greene, um, who was, anyway, this is a long story of British spy novels, but John Le Carre wrote a novel called The Constant Gardener about a pharmaceutical crime and concealment and cover-up in Africa. Now, Le Carre wrote in his uh, afterward um, 
the events of this book don't refer to any true corporation or person. Yeah. But he said, however, my true journey through the pharmaceutical industry jungle makes the events that I tell in this book look like a holiday postcard. I mean, these are gangster organizations. That and the American people just doesn't yet see that, in spite of the rap sheet. Well, the rap sheet is one thing. The information I've been, not Naomi Wolf and, uh, and, and countless other people. Who's the guy with the subsex? Steve Kirsch. Is that his name? You know, yeah. Endless data about the harm from the vaccines. And yet, and yet, you have advertisement, and you also have no apparently pending prosecution from the DOJ. You have the continuing the uh, biopharmaceuticals uh, in bed with NIH, CDC. I mean, this is like, this is a crime novel. Right? What it I'm is. Talking, it's well, it's a crime, crime novel. Go ahead. This is a crime novel. Uh, yeah. not, not a crime novel. It's a true crime book. Yes, it is. It so is. Steve and Kirsch, and I, I've told him this. I said, Steve, you, you keep presenting empirical data to people who have no interest in empirical data. Okay, I would argue like actually that, that- Steve keeps saying, I found it, I've, I've discussed, but yes, but you're presenting data to people who don't care a fig about data. I would actually say about that, the column he writes, I don't know how many subscribers he has, but the column he writes, I, I will read them, my husband reads them, we know. I read them but, every day. But. But you're right, the vast majority of Americans who probably should know this, they, they are like uh, waiting for the next NFL game or something. They're just, they're, they're not tuned in. But I do lay some fault at the feet of the federal government, of NIH, CDC, all these federal organizations uh, who should be, FDA, who should be the antagonists, the representatives of the American people calling out these, these uh, drug manufacturers and the vaccines, they're, but they're, they're, not, they're, they're owned. Our government agencies regulatory are, capture. They, they are, are, are not looking out for the American citizenry. They're devouring the American citizenry. They are. Yeah. They are. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so I, I want to get to that because that was a great column and gets people really thinking uh, about the conversation we're having right now. Okay. And then one other thing before... Uh, 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 I just want to commend you on writing about this, and we don't have to go into it. But you write really, you write really well, and so I want to commend you on the column you wrote about. This was actually I think from September, it was a while ago. But uh, there was a Thomas Sowell having a book out. Thomas Sowell, brightest, you know, I love him. I, I endlessly quote him, um, and his he's just brilliant. But anyway, Thomas Sowell is talking about basically is America's decline in stage four terminal, like like is America over, and um, while he's extremely bright and he's laying out arguments about the downfall of our civilization and do we yet have, do we have a core of people who will stand up for it? Um, and I do wonder about that. I think, I think millions of Americans wonder because they see crime on the rise and, and lawlessness and the loss of rule of law and uh, abandonment of our border and foreign policy that seems designed to hurt America. Well, what Thomas uh, is really concerned about and he articulated it very well in that interview is that you know, civilizations, I think Charlie Munger, um, uh, um, Warren Buffett's partner, he said, you know, civilizations can decline a lot before they die. I mean, you know, you think about Rome under the early Caesars and, you know, somehow Rome managed to come back. I mean, in other words, Rome wasn't extinguished by the, 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 the antics of Caligula and Nero. It kind of came back. So, but what Thomas Sowell is worried about is that people who speak the truth 
you know, the knives come out for them. Like, yes. like you know, it, 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 he, he would be very concerned about setting foot on a college campus. I mean, this kind of elderly uh, kind of, you know, gr grand statesman of American letters who happens to be a black man is, is saying, you know, it's, you've got to have, four. It, it's pretty scary to walk on for, for a guy like me to walk on to a college campus. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like these kids are, have just lost their minds. So, so that's what's concerning to him is, is that, you know, the voice of reason and truth is immediately taken out and shot. Yeah, I'll tell you, and on that subject, Dr. Peter McCullough, your colleague and friend, been on the show, love this guy, I think he's a great guy. He's had, because he was the one willing to just speak up about COVID on many early on, questioning a variety of things that were said and done, still speaks up, goes around the world speaking up. He has lost his right to practice medicine in the hospital. And maybe, maybe you know the exact nature of the punishment executed against him, but he was a premier, he, he was a, a nationwide recognized uh, doctor and expert who's lost uh, not just stature, but lost jobs, lost, correct, quickly tell me what has been done to him. Well, his previous um, large medical center in Dallas, um, of, of, of which he himself um, uh, was a, um, uh, a benefactor. I mean, he, he had a, a, a longstanding affiliation with this institution whose name shall not be mentioned. Fine. Um, um, you know, they fired him. Yep. Um, the American Board of Internal Medicine is still coming after him for his board certifications. All of his academic journals, of which he was the editor. Um, and all of this, the fascinating thing about Peter McCullough's case is no one has had the courage to walk up to him face to face and challenge him. Not one, not one institutional head has actually, it's all this kind of cold registered mail executions. Yeah. He, he's never actually had a warm interaction with anyone who's challenged him, anyone who's challenged him to a debate. No, it's just death by registered mail. Yeah, that's so they're a bunch of cowards as well. They are cowards. And actually, aside from broad, you know, swats at him like, um, he's wrong to denounce the vaccines. It's dangerous to denounce the vaccines. It's dangerous to say, I mean, they take He's grudge. questioned the safety yeah. of the vaccine. Yeah. yeah, but I'm getting at, they don't counter specific things. He is conclusions he's reaching. They don't counter studies he, is support, he has uh, spread. He's let people know about. They're not challenging the merits. I mean, they are just saying, they're just, it's kind of like a little kid saying liar, 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 or something like that. It's true. It, it was that, no substance I mean. yeah. to, no substance to what they're saying. It's staggering. Okay, I, we don't have time again today, but I'll just, because I want to turn your book, but uh, we talked before we started, Dr. Reiner Fulmick, uh, a German, and you guys, if you know that name at all, he was the one, he's had, he, he's traveled a lot, but he was in Germany, he was doing a podcast, getting experts in to just talk through COVID. He had Peter McCullough on in 21, I think it was, and he's been arrested, and I could tell you, when, you hear, when I hear people are prominent and speak up about things like COVID and they get arrested, you know, and then, but then they always manage to run a story. Well, you know, it appears he embezzled money. And you're thinking, well, if he embezzled money, but you know, you, I, now you just have, should have a big red flag. Say, I don't, I mean, I don't know him, but I don't, I think they come up with a credible enough story to cause the average person to say, well, I'm going to step back. I mean, if that's what they're saying. So he is in prison in Germany since October. Well, well so the, the thing that's suspicious about Reiner Fullmilk 
So he was a German lawyer, and he, like a lot of people, like me here in the United States, like Dr. McCullough, questioned the pandemic response in Germany. And he started a foundation um, called the COVID Ausschuss, in German Ausschuss is like inquiry. And like, what's going on? What's the deal with the pandemic response? And now he was pretty strident in his criticism. Um, but through his foundation, doing all of this communicative communications, investigative scholarship, um, you know, getting people together to talk, he, he, he received donations for his work. He was living in Mexico and he lost his German passport. He contacted the German consulate. They said, well, you need to come to the consulate in Mexico City to get a new passport. And when he went to the German consulate in Mexico City, there were just people there that arrested him. So already off the bat, it's kind of strange. It's, it's if you have evidence that he committed a crime and you're now claiming you do, what was this kind of waiting? Like, why didn't you issue a warrant yeah. and, and, and do this in a straightforward way? But the thing that's really suspicious about it, so the claim is he broke a law in the, on the German Code of Criminal Justice um, against um, its misappropriation, misuse of, of foundation funds for personal use. And they're claiming that they have evidence of this. And you think, well, okay, you, you claim you have sufficient evidence to basically kidnap him from Mexico. Why is he sitting in pretrial detention in two months later? Like, right. if you have evidence, why don't you get on with a trial? Yeah, and he's had defenders, people uh, on his team are saying the money is not even, that they're not even missing. It's in someone else's bank account who is one of the accusers. I mean, but, it but is a, it's, yeah. It's, it's true, but, but if, if, the, if the German or, or uh, the jurisdiction in the EU has evidence that can show money moving from the foundation account to his personal account, that presentation of evidence should not be difficult to perform in yeah. court. So why is it taking them so long? Just, yeah, to, just to leave a guy in pretrial detention. Oh, it, uh, I do not know, but my surmise is it's just another silencing. There's another silencing. You don't challenge the authorities on COVID or a whole bunch of other issues. And, you know, that whole technique of threatening, uh, trying to take away your law license, which I'm not sure they're doing that to him, but it's happening. You talk about the issues in America, COVID, election fraud, climate alarmism, border stuff. The technique is it always includes mockery, ridicule, threat, and silencing. Never a discussion on the merits, never a, what, what, on all those issues. It's a tactic I hope most people will begin be more alert to and then therefore not misled by, not duped by. They would just, you know, I, I, I don't know Reimer Fulick, Fulmick, whoever you say his name, but I will say my, my, my gut reaction is, you know, I just, I don't believe the authorities. I think they're just trying to silence someone who's questioning the way they handle the pandemic. Anyway, we could. Well, what, I what I would quickly add to that is, is a lot of this, it's like if, if the Department of Justice or the FBI decides to knock on your door, you may ultimately be exonerated. But by the time you've gone through the meat grinder of this and, and had to lawyer up and, and had to, you know, you're basically destroyed. So, so in other words, it's this, 
with the veneer of a judicial process, it's like, we'll just chew this guy and spit him out. And, it, and it, so it doesn't matter if he's ultimately exonerated. He, he's, he's basically, you know, spent. He's spent, destroyed, and broke. Right. And that's actually on the subject of being broke, and then we'll turn to your book now. But on the subject of being broke, every on an election fraud, the lawyers, the officials who were related to the Trump campaign and others, people who filed litigation in good faith, they filed documents, attached litigation, they filed proof, they went to court and said, look, this is a, we have evidence, we believe a serious election fraud that is election changing, outcome changing, and the answer of the system, beside we don't look at the merits of any of your cases, they're dismissed on, on you know, lack of standing, on latches, and some other argument rather than, than the merits, and then the system goes after the lawyers. And so Sidney Powell, who I will say she happens to be a friend, uh, she's also the most ethical person you can imagine. And she, what the, the, technique, the technique is just to attempt to remove her license, to take her law license on the argument he filed frivolous claims. And so I'm just getting at when the, when the system decides, we're done with you, you're, interrupt, you're interfering with the narrative, you're interfering with what we've decided must be believed by the people, We'll find a way to silence you, and 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 you're right about being harmed and destroyed in reputation. But you're also broke. I mean, you don't ever get your lawyers' fees back. In the case of a, a magnitude like that, these lawyers are facing. It's you know, it's you're you're going to spend two million dollars easily before you get to trial. You spend that, and so it, they know that the system actually just just silences you as he silences you. It, it is an astonishing thing to see in America. Okay, you want to respond to that before we hit this book? Well, I'm. I, that's the problem with corruption. I mean, um, if, yeah. if our judiciary is not giving people a fair shake with due process, then we're basically doomed. Yes, sir. Um, so how does one ensure the integrity of the judiciary? I mean, and, and Uncle Sam and the Department of Justice and the FBI, and they've got a lot of power and they've got endless resources. And, and they're all on the same team. And they can always print more money. I mean, they, yeah. they, they have the printing press as well. So yep. um, you, before you step in the ring with the U.S. government, I mean, you've got to have... Yeah, well, I understand yeah. what the U.S. government is doing at this time. It is, it is among the reasons I say 2024 is the most consequential election we've ever had in our lives, because I think there are those, if there were to be a majority, if there are some in the White House, majority in the House and Senate who are willing to pursue truth, there is a massive problem of corruption at the deepest levels, in my view. And the DOJ, FBI, many elements of the federal government, and con including as it spills over in, into the judiciary, there's a great column by Daniel Horowitz, years ago in um, conservative review he said if congress ever had a majority and the white house these are things they could do to rein in the judiciary and they were all brilliant ideas i saved that column because it was extraordinary i'm just saying if people with courage and backbone got in positions of power you can you can fight back but you have to decide you care enough to do it and you're going to care enough to understand you're going to be pilloried you're going to be attacked okay we're on, not in your top book yet you want to get to your book sure. <laughs> You know, How much time do we have to talk about my new magnum opus? Okay. Uh, well, we, we wrap up in 13 minutes. Okay. And 13. 
Unlucky number. Very good. Okay. Okay. So the book is The Meaning of Malice on the Trail of the Black Widow of Highland Park. True story by John Lee. This is what it looks like. I urge you to order it. Can you zoom in on it? I urge you to order it. I got mine. Um, I don't think I got it from you, but you can get it on Amazon in any case. You can get it on Amazon or at probably at your website, right? No, authors. just Amazon. Amazon's good. Okay. And it is staggering because true, and I told John before we start, I actually know people in this book. I, I, and so, you know, I, again, I asked you when we started, why did you write the first one in, uh, in, in Vienna? This one, you got started writing about a woman in Highland Park, again, for you uh, non-Texans here, lovely area of Dallas, high-end area of Dallas, where John grew up, and you actually knew this woman. That's staggering. So how did you get, why did you decide to do this? Um, so uh, it, the year was 1983. I grew up in Highland Park. It's uh, an independent township um, in Dallas County, in the middle of Dallas County, j just north of downtown. Um, for a long time, as long as I can remember, it's been called the bubble. Um, it's an affluent place. I had the good fortune to grow up there. And the idea of the bubble is nothing bad ever happens here, which made it very interesting because down the street from me when I was a boy was a lady named Sandra Bridewell. Now that's her on the cover. That's on her uh, wedding day to her third husband. Her her hand is on the shoulder of her third her husband. Her now deceased third husband. Go right. ahead. Right. So um, exactly one year after that photo was taken, he it was on the eve of their one year wedding anniversary. They were estranged. He ran out to meet her to do an errand with her, and that was the last he was ever seen. He was then found shot to death in his vehicle, wearing the same clothes he was wearing when he ran out to meet her. Okay, so what happened when he was shot was it then raised the question, who is this lady and what's her background? Okay, so at the time I knew Sandra, so I was friends with her daughter, she had three children. I was friends with her elder, her oldest, her older daughter, and I would hang out at their house on Lorraine Avenue in Highland Park. At that time, it would have been the years 1983 and 84, and I only learned this later. Sandra was already under suspicion for the murder, for the death of her first husband, mm -hmm. and then she was also under suspicion for the death, of gunshot death, of the wife of a very prominent cancer doctor in Dallas who had treated Sandra's second husband, a man named Bobby Bridewell, for lymphoma. Two months after Bobby Bridewell died, the cancer treatments did not prevail, the doctor's, who, the treating physician's wife was found shot to death at Love Field Airport. Now, in all three of these cases, Sandra is the last known contact. What makes the story deeply intriguing and what was very intriguing for me to investigate was the first two deaths. Remember, the third husband, it was obvious, it was very apparent to law enforcement that he had been murdered. And Sandra was the prime suspect, though she was never arrested. Okay, But what happened was... The murder of the third husband, which was recognized as murder, prompted me to go back and look at the death of the first husband and the doctor's wife. The Dallas County Medical Examiner in 1975 and 1982 ruled these deaths suicides. 
And the fact that Sandra was the last known contact was perceived as just a coincidence. So I went back, I was able to get the death scene photos of the first husband and of Betsy Bagwell as she was found in her vehicle at Love Field. I had contemporary bloodstain pattern experts and crime scene forensic scientists examine those photos. Those photos clearly display that the first husband and the doctor's wife did not commit suicide. There's clear evidence that another person was involved in these deaths. So in the final analysis of my book, all of my research and investigation has led me to draw the conclusion that Sandra Bridewell is an officially undetected serial killer, and she's still alive. She might she's well be 79, watching. She's 79, isn't she? 79. 79. Yeah. Yeah. So the the totality of circumstances and the physical evidence displayed in the photographs, I think, presents a very compelling case that Sandra is a serial murderer. So. Okay, I gotta tell you guys, uh, this reads like it's a funny thing to say. It reads like a novel. I mean, you have, I mean, you are really diligent researcher, which I commend. As is Dr. McCullough, all the work you guys do, diligent researcher, following up a couple kind of human elements. I want to hit on the uh, in this book, but one thing I thought was amazing. This mentality I've been talking about, people they get they get. A narrative has been assigned. The answer is this: you know, she was it was it was suicide, and then everyone tries to make everything fit that. And so to poke at people at all, one fact that jumped out at me um, was when they discovered the third husband's body in his truck in Oklahoma, and he's the the story she had said that they were supposed to meet. It was actually at a at a storage unit, but they were supposed to Sandra and, and Sandra and the husband are, are separated. They're supposed to meet at a storage unit. She claims he never showed up. And so then they find his body in Oklahoma and they say to her, is the last thing he had on, you know, whatever it was, yellow shirt, blue shorts, whatever the thing was. They a red sweater, or, excuse me, a navy sweater, pardon me, a navy yeah. sweater. And, and she says, yes. Well, if he never showed up, how she know what he had on? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing. I mean, I, I do, I, I say I don't read true crime things because they scare me, but um, I do, I like to watch. I like to watch a thing that ends in a solid hour, like it solves a mystery, you know, like Matlock, that's my level, you know, Matlock, or, <laughs> or, or um, Psych, or something. Anyway, but on the series, well, that alone, it seems like, where was the alertness of an officer to say, well, how'd she know what he had on? Yeah, um, uh, one of the many mysterious elements in this story is uh, law enforcement seems to be fumbling. Um, I, I remember watching a cowboy game, I think it was last year, in which, bless his heart, the kicker missed like four. <laughs> bless his heart. You remember that? He, kicked, he missed four, I think, four field, field goals in a row. It's like almost unprecedented. It's like, where is law enforcement in this? Now, to, to, be, to be fair. In this, in the book, yeah. yeah it's just, it's, uh, um, so to, to be fair, particularly with, with the case of Betsy Bagwell, and, oh. and, and I, I fault my community, um, there were extremely suspicious, known suspicious elements in Sandra's conduct with Betsy. But her immediate next of kin, her husband, and her best friends did not divulge this information about Sandra's suspicion, 
to the police. So, you know, I would tell people when I was doing my research, well, okay, so the Dallas police dropped the ball on this one. But to be fair to the Dallas police, how can they know about suspicious circumstances in Highland Park, which isn't even their jurisdiction? The only reason the Dallas police got this case was because Betsy was found at Love Field, which is, is Dallas. Dallas. So the Dallas police get drawn into this thing, even though Highland Park is not their jurisdiction, and no one in Highland Park is communicating with the police. Yeah, I got to tell you, the one thing that bothered the daylights out of me was that she, on the very day this Betsy Bagwell was killed in her car and found at Love Field, appears it happened at Love Field, she had lunch with two of her best friends at Dallas Country Club, and among the things she's, number one, she's chatty and friendly, number two, she's complaining about Sandra Birdwell, Bridewell, just, just you know, she's a pest, she won't leave me alone, I can't get rid of this woman. She's annoyed with her, and then, but they're chit-chatting away, and a happy, friendly lunch, she actually dropped her daughter off at home and, and said, don't snack because I'm going to make a nice dinner. She had put food out of the freezer to what she was going to make for dinner that night, so she's clearly thinking I'm going to be alive at dinner time. And, um, and then she, uh, but the Dallas, so the, all those well, facts. Well, she's last seen. So she told her friends at lunch, you know, Sandra is harassing me, her car won't work, you know, she needs, obviously needs to get a different vehicle because hers is unreliable. You know, I'm going to give her a ride to Love Field to rent a she car. She even tells them that. Right. And the police never even talked to the two friends from lunch to say, did she seem depressed? What, what was her condition like before, you, you know, she like literally half an hour before she drove. To, so Sandra tells the police, yeah, she gave me a ride to Love Field. And she dropped me off. I, she she's found at Love Field, shot to death, near the rent car agent. Well, yeah. So what? Like, so in other words, she just happened to have a revolver in the car and, 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 and decided to shoot herself? I mean, the story is so staggering. You're right, that one's really staggering. Because so many facts didn't add up, including her husband's own reticence to speak up very much. That was a whole other piece of the story, whether what was going on with her husband. But well, a major part of the story, so setting aside, set, just for a moment, set aside the, the murder, and it is a murder, it wasn't a suicide, and I present yeah. the evidence. Set aside that particular story. Sandra has a, a known history, a documented history of sexual blackmail of married men. Yeah. I've documented it. Yeah. So um, she was very, very beguiling. It's as seductive as a woman can be. And men would, you know, it's like in boxing, you know, the most dangerous punch is one you don't see coming. I mean, these guys did not see this seductress kind of sneak up on them and they were not prepared to, to resist that temptation. And pretty soon they're being blackmailed and they, yeah, it is, it is a staggering story. Well, you know what? We um, could have spent a whole hour on this story. I do want to urge people, well, first of all, I really commend you for pursuing this because I, you know, some people will say, well, you know, some amount of years, I know the statute of limitations of murders, you know, it's eternal, but you know, just this this kind of story should not be dropped. I mean, I know she's 79 uh, and, and, you know, alive and kicking, but I mean, the idea of it is a trail of at least three murders, it appears, and, and who knows, what, uh, and fraud for which she briefly spent some time uh, under arrest and in jail and, and all that. So she got 
caught in a minor yeah, I fraud do, I do thing. want to emphasize, um, um, to, uh, I did not make the decision to pursue this until after Sandra was arrested and, and, and confessed to committing a, a severe, a grave federal crime. It's, it's on, the, on the book, it's aggravated identity theft. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, aggravated, what does that mean? She moved in with an elderly lady. This was years after she fell under suspicion for murder in Texas. Years later, um, well, 20 years later, she was living in, in North Carolina. She befriended an elderly widow and under the guise of being a Christian minister and, and, and missionary, Sandra moved in with the elderly lady under an alias as well and proceeded to take out credit cards in the, on the old lady's name. She tried to have the old lady's social security benefit switch to a, a different bank account. So the, the law got her that time. And she did two years in a federal pen for aggravated identity theft. Now, that's an important part of this because Sandra's pattern of conduct with the widow of, of manipulation, deception, subterfuge, all of these methods of, of pretending to be someone's confidant and friend or, or, or wife, loving wife, in order to defraud that same pattern of conduct for which she was convicted, you see displayed in these, these um, officially unsolved murders. Simply. I say officially because I think law enforcement needs to get with it. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we're, we're, we're out of time, but I will say uh, one thing you ran into, which is so unfortunate uh, in the course of your investigation, many people uh, were afraid afraid, wouldn't speak to you, didn't want to talk about it, you know, worried now, well, maybe, oh, you know, what if she comes after me? I'm not, they, they actually, they were, they knew enough about her to be very suspicious of everything she did. People are very frightened. They were and, afraid of her. They were and, afraid and of my, her. And my, my own forensic consultant wrote me a very funny email. She said, um, don't worry, John, when Sandra murders you, um, I will make sure that law enforcement properly. <laughs> yeah. Well, only, only kind Thanks. of funny, only kind of yeah. funny, but, but actually it, it is a really well written and I, I do, I can see the virtue of true crime things, especially when they involve cases for which no accountability and, and, and I mean, three people's lives taken. It was just, just, it was staggering. So I commend you for writing this. I urge people to buy the, and read this book, The Meaning of Malice. And, you know, just think about all the psychological elements that go along with People who are fully aware around her, there's something really wrong with her, I don't want anything to do with her, they're afraid of her, they won't speak up, they won't cooperate, they don't go to the police. Those women at the, at the at Dallas Country Club luncheon could have said, I don't care if they come to me, I'll go to them. I want to tell them, there's no way this, but they didn't, they all just kind of sat back. So, um, a staggering story, uh, very well, well written. Um, the Meaning of Malice, again, for people, The Meaning of Malice, on the Trail of the Black Widow of Highland Park by John Leake. I urge you to get it. Uh, I commend your writing, and I thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Debbie. I enjoyed it. A lot of fun. So we ran out of time for our usual Q&A from the audience, but I think you can probably grab them afterwards. For our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk and give you a quick update. Uh, for next week, we have Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joining us. He's joined us in the past. He was 
former uh, chair of the Texas State GOP, former gubernatorial candidate, former member of Congress. He's now running for an office here in Texas you'll hear about. And then I didn't bring my calendar, so I can't tell you in order, but upcoming guests include uh, Liz Collin, who's the author of the book related to the, uh, the fall of Minneapolis. Her book is called They're Lying. She's a former reporter, really sharp. She's coming in from Minnesota to talk about what the truth is about George Floyd incident and, and the uh, lies that were told and then the uh, cascade of problems that came from that. Uh, Dallas talk show host Mark Davis is coming in uh, right after the New Hampshire primary. I think we'll have Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary, and we're going to come in, he'll come in, we're going to talk about the 2024 elections. Uh, Chuck DeVore, who's a wonderful um, uh, person, he's, I forgot his exact title, Texas Public Policy Foundation, but he's talking about their work to uh, rescue and save Texas and America in the upcoming year, 2024. So, I last thing I gotta do before we close out is I want to encourage you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. At the website, you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can certainly become a member. You can donate to support this show. The show is entirely, um, I have, I've been doing this show for nearly 10 years, never been paid anything, but you can support the show, which helps pay for this lovely studio uh, and our ability to do this lovely show. So I urge you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. Check it out. Uh, and also on our social media channels, I would love your support there. Uh, Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Again, the show goes out on Twitter, at Debbie Kimmy Talk on Twitter. And we're also on all the other social media channels that there are under America Can We Talk, except for YouTube, which we don't talk about because we're not there anymore. But, we, uh, but uh, other than that, we all the, love you to follow and support. Uh, last, I'll remind you, I am running for RNC Committee Woman for the state of Texas. That website is Debbie G. And the numeral four, DebbieGforRNC.com, DebbieGforRNC.com. Check out that website. The election is here in May, but you can, wherever you are in the country, check out that website. You can endorse the campaign, uh, which I really appreciate. You can send messages to me. Uh, that would very much help our campaign. I am running, really, to be part of the RNC, be part of the voice of American citizens trying to stand up and speak up to save this precious country. I do this show, America Can We Talk, to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear